And hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's weekly Yap, the Yes Am podcast. I am Travis Thomas, the host. This is episode 43, A Pocket Full of Dreams. And the reason this is A Pocket Full of Dreams because today I am interviewing author David Birch. And uh, part of the concern I had with being up in northern Michigan all summer uh, well, not all summer, but for about a month, month and a half, and being at camp before that was my goal of doing the weekly podcast and, and to continue that momentum. I feel like I've been able to do a podcast every week since I started uh, not quite a year ago. This is episode 43, so 43 weeks now. And uh, so I was concerned about, okay, where am I going to find new guests? And I've just been off my computer, so I haven't been recruiting other speakers out there. And here I find myself in Charlevoix, Michigan, about two weeks ago, walking down the street. And I run into a gentleman who has a, uh, a stand set up, and he's pitching a book. And it's the author, and it's David. And he and I have a wonderful 20-minute conversation about his book, A Pocket Full of Dreams. I said, hey, I do a podcast. Would you be interested in appearing on the podcast? And he said, absolutely. So I drove back to Charlevoix. We sat down for about 20, 25 minutes. We knocked out this podcast, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So uh, David lives in northern Michigan, but was born and raised um, for his few, first few years right outside of Detroit uh, in a really sort of uh, dramatic childhood, a really dramatic story. And Pocket Full of Dreams is sort of his memoir of surviving really, really difficult and adverse situations and how it sort of impacted his life and uh, the, the qualities and the positivity that he's taken along the way. And uh, I've, I've got an opportunity to read uh, a good portion of the book. It's super inspiring. David is a very humbling, inspiring guy. And I think in our conversation today, we really sort of get into the heart of um, where that inspiration comes from. And it starts with, you know, his uh, being a child and his dad being uh, arrested and going to prison for robbing banks and just how, the upheaval of the family as a result of that. So that is today's podcast uh, interview. It is David Birch from Northern Michigan. This is a pocket full of dreams. David, welcome to the weekly Yes And podcast. Thanks. Now, David, your book, uh, tell us about the book, uh, the title of the book, and uh, kind of what the inspiration is behind the book. Well, the, the book is more of a passion or mission for me. It's uh, the title is Pocket Full of Dreams, and I wrote it for at-risk kids at first, because I was one of those. We had a very challenging childhood. And so what I wanted to do was share my story because my wife and I have been very blessed because everything worked out in the end, but you wouldn't know that from the beginning. Right. And so our childhood was full of challenges and it was my parents, not really us. And so I wanted to let kids know that you can do well in life, just believe in yourself and work hard and you can get through this and, and you know, trust that, you know, it will. And, you know, for me, faith plays a big role, but mm -hmm. some people it doesn't. So I didn't really make that the overriding factor. Sure. Because of how that works when you're, I mean, it gets to a point where my mom died and I lost all faith. I was like. And how old were you when that happened? 13. Okay. And so I was done with it. And then at 15, I ran away from home and went back. And so it's, you know, yeah, it's. Kinda. But yeah, but you've come back. You've come back, and you've you've found faith. Yeah. Well, you know, there was none in our family, and so what happened when we were younger? My mom, her mom was Methodist, and when we lived in the Detroit area, she we practiced she practiced that, and 
the further we got from my grandmother, the less and less that was. And then my father robbed 11 banks. And so we moved to East Jordan to get away from that to get a new start. So in East Jordan in about fifth grade, my friends, Brenda and Keith, went to the missionary church here mm -hmm. and they asked me to go. And so that's when I really realized just how messed up my family was because I would be invited in their home and see that their dad wasn't beating their mom or drunk or, you know, any of the things that went on in my house. And I thought, wow, you guys really have this mixed up. You, you don't know how it goes. <laughs> and so then I started realizing that it was us and seeing how their father was and what a great man he was inspired me. You know, I thought this is the kind of man, husband, and father that I want to be. I don't want to be, you know, yeah. the other. Yeah. And so when you say, for those listening, when you say East Jordan, you're referring to East Jordan, Michigan, which is a small town up here uh, in Michigan, in northern Michigan. And uh, so I've gotten a chance to read the first three chapters of the book, which I love, by the way, and I'm excited to get the rest of the book. Um, and you just mentioned that your your, your father had, had robbed 11 banks and went to prison for that. Right. And your childhood, it was a lot of sort of ho uh, hopping from house to house. Mm -hmm. um, there was physical abuse, there was sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. um, but even as I'm reading the book, and, and you just mentioned, and to you, I guess, as a child, you just kind of felt like, well, this is this is just normal, normal. childhood. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know any different. Yeah. And you wouldn't if you didn't know, I suppose. Until about <clears throat> age 9 or 10 when I started going to church with my friends. And yeah. that's when I realized, you know, and, and all my other friends, you know, they had good, you know, not all of them. There were other ones that had drunken fathers, too, but... Uh, several of my other friends that I talk about their parents. So I drew from other people, I suppose. And so, yeah. And now, now the book itself, and so the book tells a lot about your upbringing and your childhood right. and, and how you're trying to help at-risk youth uh, today. Uh, if, there was, if there was one message that you sort, you sort of take from your own experience, sort of one positive message when you look back and you sort of connect the dots of your own life, um, in, in helping um, kids today, what is kind of what is one or two key messages that that you feel have been powerful for you? Well, the key message really is <clears throat> in the end of my book. There's a thing that I found when I was in the army uh, called attitude, and it was written by a guy named Chuck Swindoll, who's a pastor. Apparently, mm -hmm. I didn't know this when okay. I found it. I found it when I was in the army, and it um, talks about um, attitude being everything in life. That. Life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you react to that. Yeah. And so I thought that was profound because I was not a bright student. I was School always challenged me. I was not good because there was no education in our family, no one. And so when I read his, his writing, I thought, wow, I don't have to be a rocket scientist to be successful or I don't have to be the best looking or strongest or... And so I, I folded it up, ripped it out of the book that I probably destroyed the book. Mm -hmm. And I folded it up and put it in my wallet and I kept it for many, many years. And anytime I got a little too low, I'd read it and say, you know, as long as I have a strong attitude, you know, that's what this guy says. And yeah. he's pretty successful. Yeah. So I'm going to believe him. Um, you know, that's what took me through. And plus the army, the army really, because I always felt inferior to people. I felt the only people that can go to college are smart or good looking or um you know, the rich people, sure. and, you know, that it wasn't my place. And so when I went into service, I realized that I really wasn't this bad kid that everybody told me. And not everybody, but people mm -hmm. told me I was or whoever, my dad or whoever. You know, because after a while, you get really run down. 
yeah. you start believing what you Yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned that in the book, how even if you don't necessarily believe something yourself, but if you hear it over and over and over again, it starts to sort of seep in and you do start to believe it. Mm -hmm. So for you, believing that you weren't, you know, sort of smart enough or you weren't worthy as a person, uh, was there a point sort of in your life where you felt like you really challenged that idea and broke through and changed it? Yeah, when I was in the Army, <clears throat> I went to think through a training called Recondo School. It's a mini ranger school or special forces. It's put on by Delta Project at Fort Bragg. And it's 20-some days of intense training, real intense. And we had started with over 100, and I think 33 of us graduated. Wow. And we had to go through prisoner or war camp. We had to do patrolling, and it was really hard. And um, it told me after that experience that I could be anything I wanted, you know, just because I had succeeded. And everything I did in the service, I succeeded at, which, you know, I got ranked really fast. I, I, because the Army doesn't care who you are. Yeah. They don't care what your name is. They care, care that you do a job and you do it well. And so going there, I didn't even know if I would last. I thought I'd flunk out of basic training, you know. You, <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. And so I went there, and, and it, it was the best thing I ever did for me. And that doesn't mean it's for everybody, but for me, it was the best thing I ever did because it gave me respect. I talk about courage, honor, and respect. It gave me respect for myself, which I think a lot of people don't have. Yeah. And until you respect yourself, how can you expect other people to respect you? Yeah. So that's... So, so that army then was that real sort of uh, uh, transitional moment for you to sort of how, how you viewed yourself. Right. Yeah. It gave me the confidence I needed. I mean, if you go into an interview with no confidence, I mean, yeah. they're going to pick it up. They're going to know. And what do you think it was about you uh, growing up? Because, you know, if, if you were to look at uh, sort of the events in your life, <clears throat> you could look at a lot of other people that would have that happen to them and they would go down a really, really different road mm -hmm. and uh, you know you look at the difference between someone sort of with a victimization or a victim mindset compared to someone with more of a uh, overcoming or a victor mindset mm -hmm. so what was it for you even in the darkest of days that you felt sort of kept you at least close enough to the right path well there was <clears throat> after like I said after I walked away from the church and after my mom died I um, I had had it I didn't buy the whole God won't give you more than you can handle stuff and uh, actually, when I moved in with my father, because he was out of prison, so yeah. the judge here in Charlevoix felt they wouldn't let this guy own a gun, but they'd give him three children, which I think is <laughs> kind of backwards, because yeah. <clears throat> my grandmother wanted us. And so I went there, and things were miserable. He still drank. He was a good provider. He made a lot of money. at a, you know, He was in a union. He did well, but he drank every night. He'd beat my stepmother up, and um, I started using. I started drinking and smoking cigarettes and smoking dope and all the other things, and so... It got to a point where I didn't like myself very much, and I was being someone I didn't like, and I knew I had to get out of that environment. And the only way to change myself was to get out. And so I left home, and that's when I got back to church. That's when I, my mom, when she died, she was dating a guy. He drank and smoked, and, but when the day she died, he became a born-again Christian. And so I moved back with him, and one of the contentions was I had to start going back to church. So really, that helped me to get back on track, to, you know, realize that I was doing all these bad things, and so. And then was it your decision to go to the Army sort of shortly after that? No, after I was pumping gas in Charlevoix at the gas station, yeah. the holiday gas station, you don't want to be pumping gas in Charlevoix in November, I'm here to tell you. So <laughs> no, you don't. It's like 10 <laughs> degrees, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I was dating a girl who, um, her dad was in the Army, and he felt, it was, he sold, I think, pharmaceuticals, and he was a very successful man, and I looked up to him. 
<clears throat> and he spoke highly of the Army. And so one day when it was freezing and I'm pumping gas, I came home and you know, I picked his daughter up. We went to his house, their house. And I said, how do you, how do you join the Army? Yeah. And he, he went off. And so I went to see a recruiter. And next thing I know, I was on a plane to Detroit. And Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it was pretty quick. So coming out of the Army and you have a sort of a, a different lease on life, um, what was what was sort of your inspiration coming out of the army? What did you want to do? What goals did you have? Well, <clears throat> believe it or not, I joined the army to play baseball, and I, I actually um, played baseball one year because okay. the the recondo thing, the uh -huh. training, interfered with baseball. So my first year in the army, I wanted to be a soldier, and I got into the whole soldier thing. But the last year in the army, I played baseball for Fort Bragg, and we played a lot of the colleges. We played UNC. Asheville, Wilmington, yeah. we played Campbell, Methodist, we played a bunch of the colleges. And in the summer, we played all the semi-pro teams. So mm -hmm. I had been recruited by a guy to move to Florida to play baseball. But in the middle of this book, a love story breaks out. So I, after I ran away, I meet a girl on the beach in East Jordan, and we become really close. But we never become real boyfriend or girlfriend, because you know I was that kid that really probably had a lot of problems. You really didn't know, you know, but <clears throat> so it was like halfway through the army and I was almost done. I had like six months left and I had a girlfriend and, um, and I was getting ready to leave and I get this letter from her and here I've been knocking myself out just trying to get a date and, you know, <laughs> and it never worked out and it was really, so she wrote this letter saying, I'm really thinking about you and I, I can't stop thinking about you. So we started through phone calls and you know, letters. We have a lot of you, letters. You weren't, you weren't sexting back then? No, they, no, they, they didn't have that. No, <laughs> no they had pay phones. <laughs> so we uh, called and talked, and my phone bills weren't, they were high. <laughs> and so I, the, the plan was <clears throat> for me to come back. She was at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. Yeah. For me to come back, spend a few weeks, and then head to Florida to play baseball because this guy wanted me to play for him down there. And, um, I, in the army, I asked her to marry me, and she kind of shot me down and backed off a little bit. And things got real choppy there for a week yeah. or two, and I was really worried that I blew it. And so, when I came back for a week, we spent a week together. She said, "Is that offer still open?" And <laughs> what offer do you mean and exactly? And so, she, marriage. I'm like, "Oh yeah." So that I just called the guy from Florida and said, "You know what? I'm done with baseball. I'm getting married, and you know I found what I've been looking for." And so, we um, then I started at a mail clerk as a and that's how I became a stockbroker. I looked for work and became a mail clerk at a local brokerage firm and worked my way up. And so you talk about working your way up. What would you what do you look back at your childhood and, and sort of the the adversity and the adaptability that you had to have as a child uh, and and how that sort of has attributed to sort of your professional success? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of kids feel flipping burgers are beneath them, but for me, flipping burgers I was taught is an opportunity could be you never know yeah and so I never ever felt anything was beneath me I mean some people might not take a mail clerk job thinking that you know why would I do that that's beneath me and that was a starting point for me and I, I do fairly well for myself and you know I always have to do it the hard way I suppose I, I never do it the easy way so I'm wired that way and so you work for Morgan Stanley now is that correct I do okay and how long have you been in, uh, a broker now oh I don't know since 88 so almost 30 years. All right, so you're still just kind of dabbling in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. So um, tell us about sort of your uh, your motivation or your inspiration working with at-risk youth. Well, we, <clears throat> I just a couple weeks ago spoke at a place called Bethany Christian Services in, in Grand Rapids where 
these kids have all been removed from their homes, their mm -hmm. residential program. And what happened was the teacher read my book to them, all 20 students, and the one kid who was graduating wanted me to speak at his graduation. Oh, that's so great. I went there and I gave them all a copy. Anybody who wanted one of my books, I just gave it to them and asked that they read it. I said, if you take the book, make, I want you to read it. I don't want you to just, you know, take it and not. And so that's all I ask of them. And so I, I spoke and I have a PowerPoint. I show them pictures of, from my childhood yeah. and so on. And, um, and that's so, it's real rewarding when, when you get someone who wants you mm -hmm. to speak at their graduation. And, you know, it, to me that's, and then you get emails from people saying how yeah. it affected them. And, you know, I had an email <clears throat> from a man and I did a talk at the high school in um, Bloomingdale, okay. Michigan, which is south of Grand Rapids, Allegan. Yeah. And um, he was, I think, retired, but he said, you know, he read my book and he connected with it right away. He said he's only read a couple books in his life, but this one he really enjoyed. And he said he liked the fact that I kept going and kept following my dream. And he said, because I didn't. You know, I wanted to go to college. My dad told me I wasn't worthy of it. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker and never really left, never really did what I wanted to do. And he said, I regret that. And, but reading your book made me, you know, yeah. proud that you did it. And so. so what was it for you that uh, when you finally decided that you need to write this book, what was the tipping point for you, motivation-wise? Well, there were a lot of things. It was seeing kids um, commit suicide and, you know, just a lot. It, you know, just, it was a lot. I mean, I had read, you know, one of my friend's kids, not my friend, but someone I knew, their, one of their kids, his friend committed suicide. And, and not just that, but kids giving up saying that well the American dream isn't alive I think it is it definitely is when you you know you look at people all over I mean look at you know you can you don't have to be a Mark Zuckerberg or a Michael Jordan you can be a doctor a lawyer an engineer a teacher yeah you can be anything you want and still be extremely happy in life and that's to me the most important if you read my book I think what you'll see is all I'm searching for is a family I just want to have a family and that's pretty simple, but I got more than that. And so that, you know, kind of, yeah. And if there's one message, if there's one message that you would, uh, not that you need to outline what someone's, what someone's gonna get out of the book, but um, uh, what would you want someone to walk away with from reading the book or whether it's kids or, or like this gentleman that called you, what's, what's kind of that central idea for you? Happiness, you know, <clears throat> and, and live well. Take care of yourself and live well and believe in yourself. That's really it. I mean, for me, once my wife and I get together and we get married and have children and, you know, we pour our souls into our family and yeah. our kids go to private, went to private schools. Our grandchildren now go to private schools because we want them to have that faith part of their education. We think yeah. it's important. And so. When you look back on your, on your life, on your journey, is there, is there anything that you look back that, uh, you would have you know, wanted to go back to a younger version of yourself and uh, whispered some advice to do things oh, differently. Oh, every day. There's so many things. <laughs> I, it could have been a lot easier if I could have done that. I mean, geez, yeah. <clears throat> I wouldn't know where to start on that one. But yeah, there, there are. But, you know, I think Kobe Bryant, um, when he retired, he said something. I, I don't quote me because I'm, I'm going to get it so wrong. It's okay. But he said something like, if you could do do-overs, life wouldn't be worth living. Yeah. I mean, you make the mistakes, you do them, and you learn from them, hopefully. And if you don't, well, so be it. And, and it cheapens. If you could go back and do it over, it would cheapen the experience. And so, yeah, but there's things I 
yeah, I've, yeah, there's so many. <laughs> yeah. What's next for you? Is there another book inside you? No, no. Really, my passion is kids. It really is. I really want kids to believe in themselves. And I've developed a thing where it talks about faith and, you know, there's four pillars and it's very basic. Um, you know, your family and faith, your health and well-being, and that being two parts, your mind and your body. So taking care of your body and then also social. If you're hanging out with the wrong people, mm -hmm. you're probably going to become the wrong person. You know, mm -hmm. practice your faith and your family and you know so it's a whole process that I talk about kids and it's very basic and the key being attitude yeah. you know have a strong attitude um, and if you ever get a chance to read that attitude by um, Chuck Swindoll it's it's pretty cool I will I will actually look it up and, and see if I can include it here on the link uh, to the podcast yeah. uh, and David for anyone who's who's sort of not in the Michigan area here um, how can they find you and your book online to order uh, just google David B Birch Birch, B-U-R-C-H, not B-I. It's B-U-R-C-H. So. And the book title again is? Pocket Full of Dreams. All right. And I'm looking at the clock. You have a dinner date to get off to. Yeah. And so I'm super grateful that you took the time to, uh, to uh, sit down on the weekly app. Oh, thanks. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank All right. you. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful yes and day. There you have it, episode 43. Thanks so much to David Birch for taking the time uh, to do that interview. Uh, a Pocket Full of Dreams, I will include a link to the book in the podcast link. And, uh, and thanks so much for David. And again, proceeds of his book go to a food shelter as well as a, uh, a women's shelter. And so every time you buy the book, um, you are helping out others at the same time. So thanks so much. I also want to thank everyone for listening to the podcast, as well as reading my post last week, The Lost Impact of Hazing. Uh, that must have struck a nerve with people. That has been the the most read and most downloaded um, on my site to date. And so no surprise to me, I think it's such a huge topic that needs to be continually addressed over and over. I've got a couple more blog, po blog posts that will be coming out that continue to address culture, especially in the sports world. Um, but I'm really excited about some possible opportunities coming up, speaking at colleges, schools, and some organizations where maybe not hazing is the, spe is the specific topic, but culture, it always comes back to the culture. Hazing does not exist in a culture that does not cultivate it. And so whether that's an athletic team or a corporate environment or a school, hazing will not exist if the culture uh, doesn't allow it to. And so loving my opportunity to work with teams and organizations as we continue to talk about culture. And of course, all of this stems back to three words for getting unstuck, live yes and, and of course my book is still available via Amazon Kindle. I'm almost done recording the audio version, which will be available hopefully by the end of the summer, And uh, but you can still read the e-version now. So that's it, everyone. Thank you. Episode 43. Have a wonderful, wonderful yes and day. 